I, I definitely feel that isolation. Talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. She told me that I should change my career goal. We're only doing science to take care of our community. You need to feel 100% prepared for sharing your knowledge. Um, there's never been a road that someone has shown me. If no one do it, it's okay if you want to do it. Well, I had a 2.5 GPA. How do I overcome this? First gen come grade, I was the class low. Higher education is for them. It will empower them. They will have a Present fun time. Present myself they will in a way that well. I feel that people would be able to to really acknowledge who I am and like we need to retain them be you you know like stop trying to mold yourself to fit. it's not just about the science it's about how we vote you know how we treat people who are different to us you know how we try and get the best out of people those things are really important when I graduate from our program I will be the first African-American male to ever have matched and graduated as a surgeon at this institution as a general surgeon which in 2021 just seems ridiculous to me. What's up, y'all? It's your host, JP Flores, and welcome to From Where Does It Stem? Um, my name is uh, Professor Christopher Jackson. I am uh, British, so I'm from uh, the East Midlands in England, and from a city called Derby. And... Um, Growing up, uh, there was an interesting experience as the one of two children to um, immigrants from Jamaica and St. Vincent. Um, so it was, a, it was a good upbringing. It was a very white sort of setting I grew up in, but quite a you know, safe and secure environment. And I enjoyed going to school. I was very easily distracted by everything outside of school, including sports. So I was very, very passionate about football and athletics, especially growing up. But I guess all the way through my education, I was interested in science, but I wasn't particularly good at it. It wasn't my strongest subject at school, but I, I did find it interesting. Um, eventually, you have to make a decision when you're doing academic work and, and studying as a, when you're younger as to whether you're going to follow that and actually take it very seriously or whether you're going to try and you know, become a professional footballer or an athlete or do something else. <laughs> and then it's, you know, when you kind of look at the numbers, it becomes pretty clear that that's going to be a hard thing to do. So I, I then kind of got my head down and started to study harder. And I was fortunate enough to go to the University of Manchester to study geology. Um, so I did uh, my undergraduate in geology. I did a PhD in um, geological sciences as well. So doing a lot of fieldwork in Egypt and living in uh, Cairo as well for a time. And then having finished my PhD, I went and worked in Norway um, in a city called Bergen, which is in Western Norway, which actually is where I'm sitting right now. I'm actually in Western Norway on sabbatical. But I originally came here, worked for about three years for an energy company and then went back to the UK to take an academic position at the uh, Imperial College. And um, I've worked at Imperial College for 16 and a half years. Today is my last day my last working yeah. day <laughs> <laughs> let's go <laughs> literally i think i'm looking at my watch in like 50 minutes time i can clock off officially from imperial college <laughs> forever so uh, today's my last working day because on monday i start at um, the university of manchester so i'm going back to my uh Alamata, so the, the university where i did um my undergraduate and phd uh to take up a new position in uh, a chair in sustainable geoscience as it's called so that's sort of like my potted journey so far and one fun fact about me is that I am quite good at knitting. Knitting? Very cool. That explains your Twitter profile picture. 
gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I was like, oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. <laughs> Congratulations. That is awesome to hear. Um, now, this has been a burning question in my mind. Uh, being a geologist, someone who really cares about our planet. Um, the answer to this might not be as holistic as I think, but what are your thoughts on whatever the heck it is going on in the U.S. right now and how they're handling the climate crisis? Oh, oh my goodness, that is a big question. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in some ways, in some ways, you know, there's reasons to be very fearful because the U.S. is a, a huge country. It has huge influence. People follow its lead. It also has um, a significant output of carbon dioxide. You know, so there's concerns there that they can dictate a lot of the mood and actually the material um, impacts of emissions on the climate. But then in a positive sense, if they react in a positive, grown up and you know, progressive <laughs> way, then that can signal to the rest of the world um, that you know, they are taking the climate crisis seriously and they are taking steps to address it. And they recognize that their negative role in that as we all should do around the world anyway. Um, so it is a very sensitive kind of subject and it's been on a knife edge recently with all the political change that's occurred in the US. So, right. you know, Trump's sort of attitude was completely different to what it looks like the Biden administration attitude is gonna be. So, you know, going, into the Paris Climate Accord, coming yeah. out of the Paris Climate Accord and then going back in again. And what that signals globally and what the actual impact would be, you know, in terms of, you know, whether the US doubles down on coal and ignores, you know, a, a move towards more um, renewable and, well, kind of uh, green energy sources, let's say. But it's all, we just hope there's some stability um, for some time now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so uh, Professor Jackson, I, I, you're a man of great renown, I must say. I don't know if you're a Hamilton fan, but that was a Hamilton reference. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, I think the only reason I know about that is I've not seen Hamilton, because basically by the time you could get tickets in London, <laughs> because it was always sold out, right? By the time you could almost get tickets in London, the COVID hit. So it was oh. all the theatres closed. So the only reason I know about Chris Jackson is because like occasionally on Twitter, people like turn up and like, put these Hamilton like memes in or like yeah. I've been mistaken for another Chris Jackson before and I was like who is this Chris Jackson <laughs> that's so funny that's awesome. yeah it's my favorite Broadway musical right now it's on Disney Plus and everything <laughs> um, but all jokes aside um, I do want to get into the nitty-gritty of these questions so being a black ge geologist have you ever felt isolated as a black geologist or as a first generation uh, college student and bouncing off that how can we better shape the education system to provide full inclusion even in Europe is it a matter of local grassroots top down both what are your thoughts on that yeah so you know kind of studying pre-university and then going to university I've said this before but I had a generally positive experience you know I was mm -hmm. you know the 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 were the the were racist incidents but they never hampered my progress as a black person that's partly because of who my parents were and their character and also what they instilled in me and so you know th those, those incidents didn't ever stop me trying to achieve what I wanted to and also I felt like I was accepted for who I was and what I was achieving um, both pre-university and at university the reason I'm always hesitant when I talk about those because the same instance I was subjected to would obviously impact another black person that could impact them in a very different way and 
completely destroy their confidence and derail their progress. And, and so therefore, there's no way we should ever allow racism to occur. And we should always counter it where we find it, right? Because we need to allow everybody to um, live without fear and, and to develop as positively and quickly as they can, irrespective of their race. So I never, even though I was the only black geologist sort of like in Manchester, and I was like the only black person pretty much <laughs> I knew in Manchester apart from one or two, again, I was very unaware of my race, which sounds a bit odd. I was just yeah. a geologist and I just had predominantly white friends and I had this working class, first generation background, but so did a few other people. And I just got on with it. Um, and to work after university in a company again it was I felt treated well I was in Norway which is an incredibly and was then an even more incredibly white country um, but again I never felt any sort of exclusionary behaviors and even then I'd say coming back to imperial my the, the most recent 16 and a half years of my life it's generally been a, a positive a positive journey the what I would say is what's happened in the last year, I think a lot of things have come to light and a lot of, um, like my blackness, if you will, I've kind of like partly reconnected with it. And then I've, I've noticed more um, in the last year personally about the way some people react to me and the way some people have basically no racial awareness, right? Of how, what they say and do and how that sounds and impacts the mental well-being of, of black people and my well-being as well. I would say over slightly longer term than the last year since the Black Lives Matter um, sort of um, protests and the murder of George Floyd, like over years before that, by being very active on social media, I've heard stories from other black people who've been subject to terrible racism. And I've become much more aware then probably going back into my own history and thinking about incidents and thinking a lot more deeply about them and realizing now how significant those incidents were, how damaging they were for somebody who's like confident and noisy and outgoing like me. <laughs> you know, they do kind of chip your edges off a bit and the accumulation of these so-called microaggressions, the slow accumulation of those are what I think can then suddenly hit you and you suddenly realize that actually, yes, you have been you have been discriminated against. It has negatively impacted your progress. And, and, and yeah, and so I think that I have experienced that. Now, to the second part of your question, what, what do we do about this? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's three things, isn't there? Or two things, at least. One is attracting black students to any particular discipline. And let's, let's stick with higher education and making them aware that higher education is for them, it will empower them, they will have a fun time, they will educate them, they will become more socially aware, you know, making it clear that higher education is not for these people over here who are white and middle class, but it could be for black working class people because talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. Giving people the opportunity to come, so you need to attract people. But I think attracting people isn't enough. I think on top of attracting people, we need to retain them. We need those systems they're entering into and those institutions they're entering into to not be hostile towards them. We need those institutions to recognise the journeys those people have been on, get there and what they've seen and how, even if they're at university, how they're treated differently. They, those institutions need to recognise that and they need to completely eradicate those things and they need to 
not only that, and not only tackle people who would bring that aggression towards black people, you also need to support those black staff and students who are, who are working in your institutions or who are part of your community. Um, and, and that takes a lot of emotional labor on the part of the non-black community. And sometimes <laughs> it takes financial commitments as well to put in yeah. place training or, or to allow specific spaces for black people to support each other in. Because part of it is not just allyship from non-blacks, it's also black people building a, a safe community for themselves to support each other. And institutions have a role to play in all of those in all of those things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, that was that was an amazing answer. Um, I, I did want to ask: Do you have any advice for those people that are are already subject to that? As a mentor, as someone that a lot of people look up to, uh, as a, as a professor, um, what is your advice to to those people that are going through it? They they are having a tough time, and and they don't have the personalities that we both have outgoing and, and yeah going none of this like none of this is their fault right that's the first thing right. for these people to realize it's not your fault for being black and in the exclusive university right it's not your fault mm. for being black and having moved into the middle classes right by your education that's not your fault you shouldn't feel guilty for that and you, you shouldn't have any self-hate for yourself this mm. is the problem of the perpetrator the people or the system which is making you feel like that that's the first thing I would say is, is to try and realize it's not you. Okay. You right. can't not be black. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. <laughs> right. you, can, you can kind of become more white by becoming educated or going to university. You can become more white by buying a big house in the suburbs. You can do all these white things, but ultimately people will still treat you on first view as, as being black and maybe discriminate against you. Um, I think then, trying then to find support in your community is the really important thing and in some of those spaces there aren't many people who are in the same let's say just to start with the same racial group as you there might not be many black people to go and say who you trust and say look this has happened to me I feel really upset about it it's impacting me in these ways what guidance could you provide me or even just listening it's not even guidance sometimes right all you want to do is talk to somebody about something that's happened and that in itself is, is kind of therapeutic and can be beneficial for moving on from a specific incident or from you know more you know systematic and longer term impacts of racism so you might then have to seek out allyship or like mentorship or well support let's just say more generally from people who aren't in your racial group because you may be in a white dominated space but there may be very progressive and supportive people in those spaces and, and they will be able to help you. So that, that's the second thing I would say is, is trying to find support. And that could be one way you can do that is physically around you. It's difficult in COVID times, but physically around you in, in the corridor, in the hallway, in the dining hall, in the sports pitch, that sort of thing. It could also be virtually, it could be on social media and it could be through online networks as well. Social media rightly is criticised for being terrible in many ways, but in a lot of other ways, historically excluded groups can come together on those platforms. Yeah. And then what you realize, like, this is one thing now I learned, is that when you do that, and whether it's black people or whether it's queer people, it's trans people, it's people from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background, you suddenly realize that they've had similar experiences to you, 
So what you experienced wasn't imagined. You suddenly feel less isolated, even though these people are on a screen. Right. You know, and I think, and I think that's one of the things sometimes critics of social media don't understand is like, why do certain groups feel safer in virtual spaces and talking to each other in virtual spaces than they do in real spaces surrounded by people who are either not like them, but all just outright hostile towards them. Right. Well, yeah, you, you are a very uh, influential person. Whenever um, I see your tweets, someone sends me your tweets and they're like, wow, this is such a great tweet. like, I can't believe this happened. And I hope you know that uh, you are a person that is someone I really look up to and someone that like, I, I think cares a wealth of knowledge. No, well, th- I mean, thank you for that. But the thing is, though, what I would say is a lot of my experiences, I'm going through all these things. I don't have all the answers. I've not right. experienced everything. I don't think anyone experience. does. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. And so what you're doing and what you're trying to do is, is share your experiences, hear about other people's experiences and their struggles. And by talking about them and even doing like podcasts like this, you know, when you ask me these questions, I'm forced to think for real about yeah. like what do I feel about this what do I think is a really good way to tackle this how would I exactly. advise somebody about this and I think having those internal dialogues but doing them very publicly on podcasts or very publicly <laughs> on social media right right I think I think, it, I think it's quite useful but it may, I mean you feel incredibly vulnerable because there's going to be haters right there's going to be people who say oh Chris yeah. just talks you know junk all the time he, he says this and he criticizes these people but and you get it all the time you talk about racism somebody turns up and says oh but you're racist because you're talking about racism and the reason you know there's racism is because you're talking about it and they will always spirit up some sort of way of criticizing you and and sometimes they should right sometimes you make a mess of it and nobody's perfect and I think then the way you go forward from that is to admit that and then move on but some things we are right about some things you know we are right to feel as minorities or as you know me and you are both first generation university Mm. attendees we are right to feel or have felt intimidated in these spaces because they just seem very alien to us, right? You know? And I think that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And, and as we both know, um, I think rep- representation really does matter, right? So pivot the mood a little bit. How does it feel to be at this uh, point in your career? You just did uh, the Christmas lectures. If you want to explain what those are to the audience, that'd be awesome. But how does this feel? I, I feel like you must feel really proud of yourself, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, so the Royal Institution Christmas. Yeah, that's good. I'm just laughing there because I never feel proud of myself for anything, but because um, I kind of, you know, and that's why you're here. <laughs> no, but I try and do something. I do as best as I can, and then it's up to other people to decide whether or not they think it was good, bad, or ugly. I have a very poor radar for working out whether anything I'm doing is useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. Royal Institution is this um, scientific society in the UK. It's been going for um, hundreds, of few hundred years. Um, every Christmas they have this prestigious lecture series called the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures and they've been running for 185 years so Michael Faraday did the first set of <laughs> lectures that's how old these are and they are held on around Christmas so normally on Boxing Day the day after Christmas and for three nights running the, the, the recent incarnation of this three nights running and they're normally given by one scientist on a specific topic and so there's been chemistry there's been astrophysics, there's been maths, there's been lots and lots of different things, evolution. Uh, This year, the subject was um, climate change. And um, the Royal Institution chose 
three lecturers to give these three lectures. So there was myself um, talking about the geological record of climate change, so looking at climate change over millions of years. There was Helen Chertsky who looked at um, the, the role the oceans play in modulating mm -hmm. and controlling the climate. And then Tara Shine talked about the kind of modern or the kind of recent climatic changes and our role in influencing those and what our role could be in the future in terms of uh, addressing some of the climate change, the negative impacts of climate change we, we're experiencing. Yeah. So it was significant this year because um, it was the first time they ever had three lecturers. Normally it's just one person gives all three, but I was the first ever black lecturer in 185 years. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it, I wish so, it wasn't 8 a.m. here, so I can just pull a drink out, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm having a drink now because it's the, it is the afternoon <laughs> here in Norway. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a it was a huge honor to be asked to give these lectures or give one of these lectures, and um, a lot of the story. Climate change would have been a big deal anyway because it's a very controversial and very topical topic, right? Then with this came this story of me being this black person, first person in 185 uh, years uh, to, to, to give a lecture. And that then triggered a whole bunch of other discourse around the lectures as to why I was the first person, historically why have people been excluded and what this meant for black people. And to your question about your, your kind of <laughs> statement, well, you must have felt very proud about that. I mean, I was... What I can say, I was, a very, I was very nervous about the opportunity because I, I like public speaking. I love talking about my subjects. I get nervous all the time, but I'm happy to push through those nerves if I believe the purpose is worth it, if it's for right. a good purpose. But I was very, very nervous about kind of like how I was going to come across. I was representing geosciences. I was representing black people. I was representing <laughs> first generation yeah. people. I was representing working class people. So for me, it was broader than simply being black. There was a lot of other things which I didn't want to screw up and I, and I wanted to represent positively for. So that was kind of stressful. But then also um, just the, the preparation for the lectures, it took six months to like write the script and to work with the demo team to design the demonstrations and, and it's all filmed as live. So there's a big camera crew there. So then it's all very tiring as well. Um, so whenever people say you must be proud or were you happy or like, how do you think it went? It's, it's really hard for me yeah. to think only about the lectures, like what right. people saw as the 58 minutes on screen. It's really hard for me to just isolate off to the 58 minutes because I saw everything that went on, including all the racist abuse I got when I was announced, right? Last, last right. June or July, whenever it was. So I'm still kind of processing bits of that and trying to, look at what those 58 minutes sort of did and what they meant and how people interacted yeah. with it and what they thought about right. it. And it yeah, you know, people talked to me about this, social media, people said that they liked it, my kids liked it, they said. And that's really important feedback, I think. Because yeah. then at least then I don't have to rely on my own assessment of what I thought it was like. I can just hear what other people thought. Yeah, I, I thought it was awesome. I, I tried to access it and it was like, oh, only people in the UK can access it. And I was like, no. <laughs> so thank you for sending that over. That, that, was, that was amazing. I was like, no problem. how am I going to watch this? <laughs> yeah. So what have you had to sacrifice in order to get to where you are now? Are there any regrets there? Are you glad that it ended up the way it did? I'm sure you are. Um, 
It, yeah, what have I had to sacrifice? I think it, maybe everybody to some degree, but academics maybe especially. It's quite a high-pressure job. There's lots of moving parts. There's mm-hmm. the tension between work and all the people you work with. And then if you have family, your family and your friends. And so trying to make sure that you are fulfilling the needs of all of those people, as well as not sacrificing your own mental and physical well-being to make everybody else happy. Mm. You know, trying to make all of that work at the same time is, is, can be quite demanding. Do I, do I think I've done that well? Um, I think I've done it better at times than others. <laughs> I think sometimes I've neglected myself, other times I've neglected my family, at times I've probably neglected people at work who are relying on me because you are trying to juggle all of these things um at the moment i'm kind of moving jobs and there'll be lots of changes with that but i I look at aspects of academia and i and i and i think academia is incredibly demanding and it's that bit that it's that balance between the demands placed on you by academia and the fulfillment you get right and that fulfillment can come in many ways it can come in doing podcasts like this and talking to early career researchers and scholars like yourself. <laughs> it can come from setting up things like preprint servers to make open science a reality and democratize science. It can come from writing a yeah. paper with a PhD. You've got to find fulfillment in all of those things, I think, because otherwise it is just like you're just rushing and rushing and rushing. Right. And you find it very hard to kind of take a moment and look around and, and see what you're achieving and I could see how when you retire almost, you could feel incredibly unfulfilled <laughs> because right. lots of good things would have happened, but you'd have been in such a headspace that you weren't actually recognizing them. And I think that's something which is, like, you know, how old am I? I'll be 44 in uh, a few weeks' <laughs> time. Um, I think as I get to kind of middle age or mid career, let's say, I'm kind of struggling and thinking more about that because. I feel I'm giving as much as I can to academia. Academia seems to be okay with how much I'm giving. My family seems to not hate me. My friends <laughs> still invite me out for bike rides and to go to parties, right? So maybe everything's just about imbalance. But I do remain, I am hyper vigilant about my well being because I, I just don't think any job even though academia is an amazing job for lots of obvious and possibly non-obvious reasons, I, I think academia could be quite damaging. And, and, and if you're not aware of, of, of how you feel about it, you can just find yourself just doing it because you're doing it, right? I'm an academic and I just do academia. And actually without <laughs> saying, you know what, this actually isn't very good for me. And it's not very good for my family or it's not very good for the people I work with and therefore I need to go and do something else. Um, yeah. The problem there, I think, is a lot of academic self-worth and and people's identities as academics is tied to their science. And they can't imagine themselves in a different career or a different space. And I get that, right? Because it it is kind of all-consuming. But I am just doing that for myself, just being aware of of how I feel about it. Yeah. And I mean, you're you're a very vibrant human being, right? But... I think we both know that um, you're not going to have a best day every day. What are your tricks? What are, what are your magic tricks for uh, staying motivated and just <laughs> keep going? Oh, God. Just fair unemployment. <laughs> um, <no. laughs> Living outside this house in the cold. Um, that's a strong motivation for doing my job. 
No, I think I think for me, um, I'm very physically active. I really need to get outside. My life is full, right? I, I love running. I love cycling. I went running today with my wife. I took an hour off work and we went for a run in the snow and it was really beautiful. So I need to feel kind of fulfilled in all areas of my life. Like you need to feel I'm physically kind of active. I need to feel that I'm sort of actively partaking in home life with my three daughters. And I'm sort of aware I'm not an absent father or an absent carer in that respect. One thing I find really useful for me is celebrating everything. It's just like enjoying <laughs> everything that happens, anything that's small and positive. So like, in what way, though, know, like throwing a little mini party or like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> like, yeah, booze, lights. <laughs> no, I mean, no, seriously, though, I mean, like you get a paper, you know, I publish like, I don't know, over 200 scientific papers right now. Mm-hmm. And you'd think at this point, publishing the paper wouldn't really matter. But it's just a huge I just like whether it's just me as first author and it's somebody's assessed my work and we've got it published. It's just like. Oh, I really like doing that work. I really like writing it up. And somebody sort of assessed it to varying degrees and they thought it was worthy of being published. Or whether it's a PhD or an MSc-led piece of work that's being published. I just think it, it's so exciting. You know, when those things happen, you should celebrate them. So I do have a drink. Yeah. Send excited emails to students when they have abstracts accepted for conferences because... For them, it's a huge, huge deal. And for me as a supervisor, as an advisor, to see their happiness and to see their recognition of their progress, that is really enriching for me. It's like, okay, it's my job, but actually at a human level, it's just very, very exciting to, to see another person who you care about feeling positive about themselves. I do think like that for me is another kind of trick or tip if you will that you just make sure you do put the brakes on occasionally and look around at what you've done somebody gave me a tip the other day at the end of the week on a friday you should write down all the things you've done yeah because often on a friday you're left with this feeling that i had this to-do list and i didn't do anything on it all (laughs) but actually if you kind of like look at what you did do and some of the other things that weren't on the to-do list but actually which influenced other people's lives in a positive way it's a much better way to end the week to realize that you are a you are a productive human being. Yeah, well, I mean that's all I stand for, right? Really bringing out um, humanity again in in hard fields like science because I, I feel like it just gets lost, as I said um, before I hit record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can look at scientists as being like really is it? I think the word is dispassionate, right? So they're like yeah. Um, like I do this like hard sums or I do this hard bit of analysis and I'm not political and I'm not human and I don't need people around me because I'm <laughs> wedded to my work. And it's just complete garbage, as you'd say over there. Right? Yeah. Because definitely. before we became scientists, we were children. We were human beings. Right. We still are members of the public. Right. Yeah. We're, we're still political animals. We're still emotional creatures. We're still human. Right. And what we do for our jobs as scientists may kind of change our lens slightly. But I think that's one thing I've felt over the last 10 years or so is, is, is kind of feeling like what was originally motivating me and what I originally wanted to achieve and all the things I originally valued before I went to university, trying to bring some of that back into like my practice, quote unquote, right. as an academic. So it's yeah. not just about the science, it's about how we vote, how we treat people who are different to us, how we try and get the best out of people. Those things are really important for me, as well as raising money and writing papers. All right. So I'm going to shoot some fun questions at you now. That's okay. 
<laughs> if you could do anything else with your life, what would you do? Oh my <laughs> and you kind of touched on this earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually been thinking about this quite a bit recently. Um, <laughs> What would I do if I wasn't doing this? I like people and I like working with people and I like seeing people, I like telling people about things and people learning and seeing sparks in them and then getting excited and seeing people progress. And so whenever I talk to my wife about yeah. this, which is why I'm laughing, because <laughs> I regularly talk to her about this at the moment. If I worked in like social work or as a teacher, my wife is a teacher. And I'm a teacher to a, to a, I'm a teacher as well, I guess, an educator. Like that bit of it, I really, really like, like looking, like trying to influence people, not just like thematically around the scientific discipline, but also as a, as a person trying to make them understand um, why it's important to be um, compassionate towards other human beings, you know? So maybe something in teaching or social work or something which got me out and about in the community, meeting different people and testing myself almost in terms of how I relate to them, right? Because that's one of the challenges of life is not everybody's the same. And so how do we get the best out of people and how do we relate to them and how do we modify our behaviours so that we can in totality get the best out of each other and, and progress something we're working on jointly. So that would be a good job, would be a good test. I mean, but then on the flip side, you know, I, I like being... <laughs> like being outdoors. I like riding my bike. Could I be a bike mechanic? Could I do like kind of... Kind of like talk to my wife about traveling as well. And, and you do these like holidays for like marathon runners or holidays for cyclists where you do the given tours and stuff like this. And I think, oh, that would be quite nice because you'd be outdoors, you'd be meeting people, you'd be trying to get people to improve. It's not that I'm any good at cycling or running, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like you're in the right place. I feel like you have the perfect career for who you are. Like, like think about it. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to you just have to be faster than the person you're telling what to do i think <laughs> yes exactly. it's like teaching students you only need to be one page ahead of them in the textbook right you don't need to know yeah. what you're teaching them exactly um, so i think there are some things out there i think that i would like to do and that's different to whether i'm any good at them of course right. <laughs> okay so let's say this pandemic is over and you get to go to whoever's concert you want any any dead or alive artist who would it be oh my goodness that's a very <laughs> good question um I'll, i'm gonna pick three just because i'm the podcast guest so i can do whatever i want um, <laughs> exactly <laughs> i would I'll choose number one i'd choose queens of the stone age oh that's a good one yeah number two i would pick uh, frank ocean Oh, okay. That's a that's a big big jump there. I like that. I have I have I have very different music, and then I would also pick um, Led Zeppelin. Okay. So you like um, you like rock more? <laughs> no, I don't. Not really. No. I mean, I like all sorts of music. Yeah. But I, I listen to a lot of Queens of the Stone Age and Them Crooked Vultures and stuff, and I just love to see them live with that energy. And yeah, I've never yeah. I've never had a chance to do that. Frank Ocean just musically and oh, the message and, and the way it's done, you know, the, the auditory experience oh, and yeah. his personal story would just, you know, in it like all together would just be, I just, I just like to be there for like two hours and experience, experience yeah. that. And uh, Led Zeppelin, because I used to play in a band. And oh, very cool. I used to play bass guitar years and years ago. 
and we played a lot of Led Zeppelin, a lot of Queen, and and that sort of era of rock music. Yeah. And um, I just like to go and see Led Zeppelin play when they were sort of in their heyday. You know, there was the, I think it was the famous yeah. Madison Square Gardens gig they did, which was, um, which was recorded. And you know, like just being there and and that sort of era. So it's as much about being there at that time as it is hearing them now. Right. I don't want to go and see Robert Plant and John, you know. John Paul Jones playing now. I, I want to see them when they're in Led Zeppelin right, right, years right. ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a huge Queen fan, so I'm sad you uh, chose Led Zeppelin over Queen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, two more. So, who was your favorite mentor slash teacher growing up and why? And that can be open interpretation. It doesn't necessarily have to be an educator, just someone who has a, who's had a positive influence. Yeah, um, there's a couple of people. So one was my, um, I, I mean, like growing up, I guess my mum and dad were very influential. They were not academic. They were both nurses, came over from Jamaica and St. Vincent to live in the UK in the late 60s. So how they dealt with what they had to deal with before I was born and when I was born in terms of racism in the UK. And their outlook on life was, and is, in my mum's case, very... Um, very like positive and you try and work as hard as you can and as long as you feel that you've done as much as you can and you've worked as hard as you can that's enough mm. you never want to leave a situation feeling that you've never done as well as you can and if you fail that's fine and if this thing is beyond you that's fine but you always will have a, a, a warm glow inside you if you feel that you've really applied yourself to a problem and you know they applied that to me when I was growing up across the sports I did they did it academically. And that was what I needed growing up as a child. I needed supportive yeah. parents whose message to me was try your hardest, but not then to criticize and punish me for not being the best or winning or, or anything like that. And that was useful for me. Um, I guess at university, a hugely influential person in my life was my PhD supervisor, Rob Gorthorpe. He taught me as an undergraduate. He inspired me um, with his teaching style and what he was teaching us about and that drew me then to sedimentary basin analysis which is what I, I work mm. on now so looking at the the evolution structure of the earth and it's not just like all the technical stuff he taught me he taught me how to press buttons on machines and make machines beep and collect data <laughs> you know like all, <laughs> like all the stuff the scientist stuff, stuff. <laughs> all the science stuff yeah but it was all the other stuff as well like the attention to detail and why it matters and how you talk to people and he's a big climber right so he, he got me into rock climbing as a, as a, as a PhD student I love climbing. And, yeah. yeah and so what I really liked about him was he had this very balanced view like he was like okay I'm gonna work really hard during these eight hours or work and then I'm gonna go and climb for two hours in the evening and I really need to do that he said to come back the next day and work hard on the science again and so that kind of work-life balance thing, which at times a lot of academics struggle with, I took a lot of pointers from him in terms of the value of what was going on outside of your work and, and, and what that could bring to you in your work and, and, and make you calmer and enjoy your work more and be more productive when you're there if you take that time away. So that was very influential. And even after I finished my PhD, you know, we're very close friends and personal issues I suffered from depression and joined my PhD in the, in the last kind of stages of my PhD and it was nothing to do with him and, and with what I was doing in fact but he was very supportive then in trying to like make the environment as positive as possible for me to kind of finish the PhD and do as well as I could and, and I hugely respect him for that and so we have a very personal 
very close personal relationship that allows us to to talk about difficult things and personal things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I guess more recently, um, people are finding inspiring. I've got a friend, Ben Britton, um, uh, who's a material scientist. Uh, well, he's at Imperial College. He's leaving today as well. He's going to the University of British Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> and it's no surprise in some ways Ben's leaving on the same day as me. He's going to UBC and he's actually in Vancouver now. Um, yeah. But he's been, he's, there's a lot of people who I kind of met at the same time as I met Ben who've been very influential in, in my thinking about um, equality, diversity, inclusion and, and justice from like the last three, four, five years. But Ben in particular, he's one of these people who I can have very like honest and open conversations where I am uncertain about things and I do feel a bit exposed or a bit like nervous about a view and I'm trying to work through it and he's always very understanding and um, and he's not afraid to tell me where I might be going wrong in or not where I'm going wrong but he he's not afraid to tell me where one of my assessments of a situation or of a person or something might need some reframing right. which would probably be yeah. a term back then which is <laughs> you wouldn't say Definitely. I'm wrong um, so I think those that group of people at various stages in my life have and are still driving me to to be the best person I can not simply in terms of the science I'm doing but also just that what I'm trying to more broadly contribute to society it sounds really stupid to say it uh, but like what you said you know if there's one person yeah. in LA who's like this person said something and it inspired me or it cheered me up or it and somebody contacts me for like that is hugely valuable to me it, it really encourages me to do more and it, and it makes me want to do more in that space as well yeah I mean I think you're doing everything right now so <laughs> you're doing a lot just being yourself so. Yeah, and you know, and ourselves will change, right? You'll get feedback, you're doing this right, you're doing this wrong. You're going to change how you do things. And at times you don't have all the energy that you need. And at other times you, you're buzzing with energy and you can take on the world and tackle every person exactly. and every problem. Um, and it does fluctuate and, and, and making sure you're aware of that and react in the right way. And it happens to me as well. Yeah. Um, I'm enjoying it so far. Awesome. So last question before I let you go. What is your proudest accomplishment or happiest memory? Uh, oh <laughs> that nervous laugh. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, proudest accomplishment. Um, your wife's going to be really angry if you don't say the marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Convincing her to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> um happiest memory i don't know there's been lots of them i mean it's it's really odd i can't I, I, somebody asked me this the other day and i find it very hard to, to put my thing very very hard to put my my finger on one moment um yeah i think that what i can say is that the, the things I do value at the moment are when people give me feedback where something I've done or said or some support I've given them has acted positively upon their life and, and, and them saying thank you for teaching me or thank you for defending me at this moment or thank you for that makes me happy and makes me want to do more of those things or if my children recall something I told them or they voice an opinion about racial 
injustice. The, the oldest one's nine, the, the second one's second eight, the middle daughter's seven. But when I hear those things, it makes me very proud that obviously we've been having conversations around them, which I think are positively influencing their outlook on life and how they will go on to treat other people. Right. And so those sorts of things, rather than specific moments, those sorts of things do make me happy. Now, they don't make me proud. I find proud always a very odd term because I pride in my daughter or my you know, PhD students yeah. doing an amazing piece of work. Do I pride in them? <laughs> I'm supremely happy for them, but proud makes it sound like I've had this like, I've had some sort you of goal on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's yeah. a lot of, it's kind of, it's hard to explain, isn't it? It's like almost, there's something in what I've done that's sort of done this. In, yeah, I, I'm just really happy for them. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, I, I do, every day it happens. You know, every day there's something terrible happens, of course. I read on Twitter about something <laughs> awful. <laughs> yeah, just doom scrolling. Just, uh, just doom scrolling. <laughs> <laughs> but then you're just like, oh my God, the world's not awful because this person posted a picture yeah. of a panda sliding down some snow, yeah. you know? That's why it's all fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well... That was my last question. And bouncing off that last one, I do want to say I've learned a lot. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this with me. And it's just so reinvigorating doing this stuff, hearing so many people's different perspectives from, from all over the world, because there's like a theme. It's all about empathy, compassion, mentoring, being human, and, and just getting away from science and working on that work-life balance. Yeah, and right, you don't so. need to leave, and I think you don't need to leave those things behind, you know. There was a great article yeah. today in Research Fortnight, which I recommend for you and your listeners, <laughs> um, which was written, I'm not can't remember who the authors were, but they were talking about all of the contributions that academics make to academia. And we look at it through the through the, the lens, if you will, of, of research income and, and papers, right? But there's, yeah. these, there's like a, a huge range, as you said at the start, about science and society. There's this huge range of of other contributions that can be made okay. and leaving those bits of your personality at the door that could help with those things is a massive loss to yourself and a massive loss yeah. to you know whoever you're working with or with whichever academic institution you're in because you end up with a monoculture which is defined by a bunch of people who raise lots of money and write lots of papers but that will never that will never survive it will it won't potentially teach well it probably won't translate research outcomes very well to the broader society it won't be able to engage with policymakers. there's all these other things which we really need to we need to go out and search for different people yeah. with that humanity and those characteristics because that's the way academia will thrive in the end I think yeah, I said that in one of my interviews yesterday. <laughs> that just made my heart kind of skip a beat. I feel like the way you look at science is, is the same way that I do. And I just really, really, really appreciate that. And it's so reaffirming hearing that from someone uh, like you. So, No, no, no problem at all. I mean, I, yeah, I think to say in an interview, for me, if I heard that from a potential grad student, I'd be like, this is the person, these are the people I want to be in the lab, in the group, right? I want people to yeah. be bringing a, a, a tenacity for science and we'll teach them the technical things and we'll help them with the science. But I also want them to bring a lot more than that. Because if you think about it, a lot of the kind of cleverness and the technical stuff, it's our jobs as advisors to teach you. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's exactly. hard jobs in your three, four, five, six years, or however long your PhD would be. You know, it's a hard job to to give you these skills to 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 succeed at the, the science, and you need to be committed and work hard and listen, and, and that's all fine. But all the other stuff, we can't give you that. You know, all the other things that we need in our research groups, I can signal my values right to people and say, and, and we do that in our group. But I want students to be coming with with a passion for other things and to bring other like ideas to the group around how we should conduct ourselves and how we should relate to other people. And I find that hugely exciting when I'm interviewing people. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. No, I, I, I really, really appreciate it. And, and if you ever need anything from an undergrad in LA, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, yeah. I've not yet been to LA. I need to, oh, I need really? to go to LA. No, okay. well, if you ever want to come.